0: I mean, I, I think that's a core piece of our faith, that that we just have humility in the presence of God and and what the project of the church could even mean. I mean, it's looked so many different ways in, in church history and Christian history. And I feel like the more I know about God, the less I know about God. You either choose humility or you just
1: stand your ground and continue to be arrogant. But if you listen, you start to say, you know what, this is how it goes, each generation comes along and says, um, we're going to hold on to some things and we're going to reinvent some things.
2: Well, friends, welcome back to the Space for Faith podcast, where we are reimagining the church for our current moment. Today, you are getting a treat to hear from my friends, Nancy Beach and Samantha Beach-Kylie mother and daughter who have a new book coming out on June 14th called Next Sunday. And genuinely it's super fascinating because what you have are two different generations. You have Nancy who's a boomer who is incredibly influential in the mega church movement, in um I I think I even mentioned this in the interview. One of the ways that I like to introduce Nancy is that I like to say like if you grew up in church in the 90s and you loved like skits performances in church, you can thank Nancy. And if you grew up in church in the 90s and you saw really bad church like skits sketches, uh you can blame Nancy. Like she was incredibly influential. I say that partly in jest, but partly it's true. Like she's incredibly influential about bringing like drama and creativity into the church at large in America. Her daughter, so Nancy's a boomer, and her daughter, Samantha, she's a millennial, and she's growing up with a very different kind of experience of church. And so uh, she's also introducing all kinds of creativity in church, but in different sorts of ways. And actually, one thing that has happened since we recorded this is Samantha has announced publicly that she is going to join a church in North Carolina, that she talks a bit about her church in Austin here. Austin New Church, which is a fantastic church in Austin. And she and her husband and child, they're actually moving out to North Carolina to be a part of our friends uh, at Church on Morgan. And so just a little bit of a heads up as we head into this conversation. That transition is going on there, but she brings this wealth of experience and a different perspective. It's one of the things that we do in this interview, as well as what happens in their book, is you have the two of them, from these two different generational perspectives, talking about some significant issues that the church is facing today. And I think it's a real treat. I think one of the things that I appreciated most about this book is the humility that they each sort of approach it with the sort of openness to be challenged, to change their views, to be corrected, to listen to people outside of their own experiences. And both of them have that. And I think that's a gift for us to take with us. And then one other quick thing: If you hop on to my Instagram, uh, they passed along a couple of books, and so I would love to give those away. So hop on over to my Instagram, M Goldsworthy, and we'll have a little thing there to be able to give away those books. But let's jump into this interview now with Nancy Beach and Samantha Beach Kylie, joining us today is nancy beach and samantha beach kylie and you both have a new book coming out called next sunday an honest dialogue about the future of the church and i thought instead of introducing each of you i thought it would be fun if nancy if you would introduce sam and sam if you would (laughs) introduce your mom i would i'd love to instead of just reading a bio to have you each introduce (laughs) each other
1: well, as long as you don't expect me to be objective. No, he, no, no, no. He's my daughter. So, yeah. Yes. Well, Samantha is my firstborn daughter. I have two girls. And she is a, first of all, wonderful person. That's the main thing I can say about her. She's just a joy to everybody who knows her. And a great friend. She's such an intentional friend. A wonderful wife. She's been married to Will for like three years now, I guess. Almost before Maybe almost, almost work. And uh, a new mom, so she has given me my first grandchild, little baby Eloise. But in addition to all of that, Sam's an artist. Um, She's been an actress for a long time. I think her other primary gift is writing, and she's written all kinds of things: screenplays, well, not screenplays, uh, regular plays, plays, and spoken word pieces, and now a book. So it was really fun to write a book. Uh, together with her. I think she's a remarkable writer and she serves the church. She's currently serving a church in Austin, Texas as their creative arts pastor. I think that's what she's called. And teaches, started teaching there, I don't know how long ago now, but teaches pretty regularly. And that's really fun for me to see as well.
2: I love that. Well, and she grew up with a great example and role model of her mom doing some of that same work
0: i did i did that was a very kind introduction mom thank you yes my mom is my mom that's who she is to me and she was a wonderful present and creative and strong mom and i got to grow up with a mom who was really gifted and demonstrated what it looks like to live out your calling and and be a great mom and wife and um she helped start the church that I grew up at, and it was a church that grew into a mega church and influenced a lot of other churches around the country. And I'm grateful to have grown up with an example of a mom who was upfront teaching. I realized later how rare that was, and a mom who really believed the arts had a place in the church. And so that deeply impacted me in my path. And she introduced me to a lot of amazing art growing up, and I'm, I'm grateful for that. She's an amazing friend and a gifted teacher and kind of like a relationship guru, honestly. And that's kind of the work Mm. she's doing now is working with teams. And it's been really fun to watch her in this season of life do that so well.
2: Yeah, I love that. I I get the chance to interact in some of the circles uh, that your mom is in. And I constantly get to hear from folks that are in those circles. And some of the coaching and other kind of like leadership work that she does with them about how every time somebody walks away from one of those spaces with you, Nancy, like I constantly get to hear about how impacted they are, that there's something that you said to them that they took away that like shifted a, a course that like set them in a new direction. I'm kind of curious about like, what does that look like for you in this season where like, Before you were you were creating things in the church. Now you're obviously involved with a church, but now you're sort of like instead of being on staff, you are working with and encouraging women and men in leadership roles. Like, how's that sort of transition been for you?
1: Well, it was uh, awkward at first. You know, I was used to one team and being at a church, and also, you know, had a big platform. And now it's very much behind the scenes. I work one-on-one or with small teams of people, but I have come to understand that I think, not that it's all about significance, but I think the weight of building into a leader, if I allow myself to realize the impact that leader will have on many other people, I think that the weight of it is actually, feels more fulfilling and, and more significant in many ways, even though it's very hidden and secret in most cases. So yeah, and and I think it's the way life goes. I think I don't like getting older, but there isn't a lot of option there. And so as we get older, I hope that we're in a season of mentoring and turning around to the next generation and letting them have their run and encouraging and inspiring in whatever ways we can and sharing some of the lessons I've learned the hard way and some of the mistakes I've made and just hopefully walking alongside younger leaders. So that's Mm. been a deep joy to me Mm. in this season.
2: I love that. Well, that's a good transition into the book that you all have written where you're pontificating about like, where's the church headed and take a bunch of different topics around that. And then Nancy as a boomer and Sam as a millennial kind of offer like, here's my viewpoint on that. And here's, here's where I see things headed as it relates to this particular topic. And one of the things before we get into any of the like specifics on it, one of the things that I was really, I would say like really compelled by from both of you that you both talk about shifting views on things. You both talk about, I used to view the church in this way. I used to hold this theology. I used to like, this had been so important to me. And then I had this encounter and it changed that. And I experienced that from both of you, which was it, it, was super interesting to me to both experience that from somebody who had a tenure in this kind of work and somebody who was like I, i've established myself and i don't actually need to rethink these things and yeah. then somebody else who like a lot of times sort of like on the younger and we will end up i know like when especially like when i was earlier on in ministry i was sure there i was so much more sure earlier than mm-hmm. i was later so anyways all of that to say, I'm really curious for each of you, where you feel like that comes from the sort of posture of having convictions, but at the same time, having an openness and a willingness to change, rethink things like, do you mind talking a little bit about that?
0: Hmm, that's a great question. I mean, I, I think that's a core piece of our faith, that that we just have humility in the presence of God and and what the project of the church could even mean. I mean, it's looked so many different ways in, in church and his, Christian history. And I feel like the more I know about God, the less I know about God. And so, and I think my mom, I'm grateful that I've grown up with an example of that. And it's actually one of the things I'm proudest of about the book is that I don't I don't know that we tell stories enough that we make enough room for people to change their mind and, and be proud of it or um, own it because a lot of times, Like you were saying, on the younger end of things, we we expect people to have been there right all along or we think we've got it all figured out. And so um, I'm grateful for the ways that that the last few in particular for me, the last five years or so have changed. You know, and I also would place that inside of an event. I think that what some of what my mom lived through with the church that we grew up at that I saw in a certain way um, and, and things that came to light, which I'm sure we'll get into later, that just for sometimes an event forces you to go, okay, there might be some things I don't know and haven't figured out yet. And what does it look like to let two things be true at once? And how do I move forward in such a way? Yeah.
2: No, that's good.
1: Yeah. You know, I can't speak for my whole generation, but I will say for me and my boomer friends, uh, right in our little circle, when we were in our twenties, I felt like in even thirties, there was some arrogance on our part. There was sort of a We've got this figured out and our parents' generation doesn't know squat about the church and we're going to revolutionize it and fix it and all of that. And then somewhere along the way, like in your 40s, you get a reckoning of some kind. First of all, you find out through pain that a lot of the things you assume aren't true or don't work. And secondly, you have a younger generation, and we experienced this at, at the church where I served, telling you, you know what? this isn't really working for us. Or, you know, we we would like to reach our generation in a little different way. And it is very humbling. That's where the humility comes in. You either choose humility or you just stand your ground and continue to be arrogant. But if you listen, you start to say, you know what, this is how it goes. Each generation comes along and says, "Um, we're going to hold on to some things and we're going to reinvent some things. And if you don't hold it loosely and invite that kind of dialogue, I I don't think we're ever going to have cross generational power that we could have. You know, I think there's a beauty in the wisdom of the older folks and the enthusiasm and curiosity and passion of the young. And when those two intersect, it can be a beautiful thing.
2: I love that posture. And I love like that to me was one of the subtexts of, of mm-hmm. your book was that felt like that was undergirding. A lot of it was this sort of like posture of like, we need to keep learning. We need to keep growing. And these are the things that we feel like are the ones that we need to be doing that with right now. But five years from now, 10 years from now, it's going to be some different things. And it's like that posture. And you talked about like the the need for the multi-generational. Well, one, of the, one of the things that I inherited when I was leading my church was was the church growth mindset that came out of, you know, that came out of 80s, 90s, early 2000s. that really thrived in the homogeneous principle that said like attracts like right and so we divided the church up into all the groups of people who are most like each other so you had your young married group and you had your empty nesters and we had people who like cats and people like dogs and we like (laughs) right divided the church up in the singles and the marrieds like and never the two (laughs) shall meet right like we kept it all but that was how like you grew a church and you did that sort of work right and then one of the things that I think we started experiencing just a little bit in Gen X that I've been experiencing a lot more with millennials is something Sam that you wrote about in the book. You talked about the missing intergenerational aspect of the church mm-hmm. of this desire to sort of reclaim that Do you mind talking a little about that. <clears throat> and even like how you're seeing that, like how does that actually work well in a church where you most naturally want to connect with people who are most like you?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think another thing that shifted is, you know, my generation grew up with, with the internet and that helped us find our people very quickly. So we now have a way to sort ourselves on a daily basis and find people who are into the exact same thing we are. And so church is actually, in my view, church now plays a really unique role because it's forcing us, if we let it, into community with people we might not stumble upon through our algorithms and that's been such a, I mean, it's just been such a personal gift to me. It's one of my favorite things about church and particularly in this season of my life. And I I write about this couple in the book, but there's a couple at my church here in Austin who are my parents age, who are truly some of our best friends in Austin. And Mm they, they, Don helped Will redo our porch on our house. And Don and Tara said they'd be our in-town grandparents when our baby came along. And they've just poured so much wisdom into us about becoming parents and starting a marriage. And then, but also we just have fun together. We play games and they're truly some of our closest friends. And I don't know that I would credit that to anything necessarily that our church put into place, other than that we have a real openness to community. I I come, my church currently is pretty low on infrastructure. And so we kind of just say, let's all meet at a brewery and whoever comes, comes And But it does like allow for these kind of unexpected encounters with people. And and I would credit Don and Tara as being the kinds of people who go into a room and want to make everyone feel included and seek out people who look like they're new or whatever. So I think it does require a lot of intentionality, but it's just been such a gift to me that I'm now passionate about how we can make that more possible in our churches for those kind of relationships to emerge.
1: Yeah. I also remember
0: when Samantha lived in Brooklyn for a
1: couple of years, and I remember you telling me, honey, because you hung out mostly with other artists your age and Mm -hmm. and then you said i miss little children Mm -hmm. and i miss elderly people Mm -hmm. and the church was one of the only places that he would cross paths Mm -hmm. either one of those absolutely yeah
2: Yeah, there's something really significant right of like being in a community with people who like if i'm not in community with people who are single and just with married folks like i think i'm missing something Mm -hmm. if i'm in like If i'm just with a bunch of guys and like there's places for that but if my sort of like main formation is happening only with guys like there's obviously something missing right Right. and this feels to me like a really healthy corrective of the church of trying to reclaim these sorts of spaces that does actually slow growth in the church like you're gonna you're gonna grow slower you might not even grow a lot in doing that, but yeah. it feels, I don't know, it, is that fair that it feels healthier, but it might be slower or no growth?
0: Yeah, I could see that because it's a little harder maybe to invite someone to a gathering where, you know, the the, the, the connections aren't going to be so immediate or there's not going to be such a quick common ground. But I think, you know, honestly, my friends who don't go to church in Austin are, are just I keep going, how do you guys know the brim bear? So, you know, how did you make that connection? People yeah, yeah. want it. So I actually yeah. don't know. I mean, it might, we might <laughs> anticipate it being counter to growth, but it might actually serve us.
1: Hmm.
2: It's really good. Well, so you all talk about children's ministry and you talk about like thinking about children. is one of the things that we're thinking about in terms of like, how does the church move forward? And one of the things that I've experienced in the kinds of churches that I get to connect with is this like reaction to some things that our generation has had to unpack that we were inherited. And so right now we hear a lot about like a deconstruction movement has become a big deal. And so as a result of that, we end up with children's ministry and youth ministries where a lot of folks are like, well, we don't want our kids to have the same baggage that we had. And so we end up maybe not handing anything to our kids or just kind of being like, I don't know what to do here. And one of the things you wrote, Sam, you said, we will almost certainly introduce our children to a small version of God that they will outgrow but let us not introduce them to a God they need to heal. So I'm kind of curious, Nancy, you've got two daughters that you feel really proud of, and it seems like they're in good, healthy places. I would be curious from your perspective, what did that look like for you and Warren to be able to hand to your children uh, a faith that gave them room to outgrow the version of God that they've been handed, but to maybe not have as much baggage, or maybe they did. Maybe I'm imposing a bit of that on you there, Sam.
0: <laughs> no, we really didn't.
1: Well, first of all, um, I think some people who work at a church might do what we did, which is sort of almost swing the pendulum really far the other way. Like the, the my fear was that they would feel like, because you're a pastor's kid, you have expectations on you and rules and you know limits that that are not going to help you be free and not going to help you find your own path and your own joy. And so if anything I think we kind of steered that way while at the same time recognizing that you know their journey was going to not just be about us although we hoped to be examples to them, but it was going to be, you know, we always say it takes a village. I mean, there's going to be other adults in their life that would have influence on them and some of those were in the church and I was grateful for men and women who invested in my girls from the time they were little um, all the way up, you know, and some of them were also artists. And so both girls being in the arts, they got to see what it looks like for someone who loves Jesus to also love the arts and, and live that out. I do think that when they got to college, they both went away to school and not a Christian college per se. You know, a lot of a lot of what Sam writes about in the book that she was questioning in college, I didn't know all of that that was going on. You know, I'm not sure I would have been the safest person. Not that I would be unsafe, but I think she needed to process that with some other people and, and go on her own quest to figure out what do I want to hold on to and what, what really didn't work for me and do I need to let go of. So I guess I would encourage parents that, you know, when you love your kids irrationally, that's, that's the foundation mm-hmm. of everything. And if they know how deeply they're loved, and if you model for them, I think their dad as well, you know, lived a life of sacrifice and generosity and integrity. And if you model that as as best you can, hopefully they're going to catch it, you know, and they're going to want that too.
2: I love that phrase. You love your kids irrationally. So Sam, you're obviously at the front end of this journey. <laughs> yeah. Recently had Eloise and... <laughs> So as you, you, you strike me as somebody who approaches things with like thoughtfulness and intentionality. So I'd assume you're already thinking about like, what does this look like for Eloise? What does this look like in the church systems that Eloise will be a part of? Like, what are some of the things that you're thinking about there?
0: Yeah, gosh, I'm so daunted by it, to be honest, because you're right. We tapped this big game, you know, done all this reading and, you know, deep dives into the nuance and complexity of scripture and, you know, like, oh, what if we could read it this way? And. And then you've got a kid staring at you. At some point, she's going to be, you know, talking, I hope. And and her mind's not going to be able to grasp onto these complexities right away. And so, and at the same time, I think kids understand paradox inherently in a way that sometimes we forget as we grow up. So there is a part of the mystery that I think she will teach me. She will remind me of. And then there's a piece of it that I'm going, what, what can I proudly give to her? And so I'm, I'm totally in a season of learning. I'm certainly not an expert yet, but I do hope to pass on what my mom has said, just her belovedness as a foundational, mm. both by me and then by just the cosmos and God who's over all of it, that she's just so loved. And, and then I hope to, and I think my mom modeled this for me. She said, I don't know a lot. I mean, she, she passed on the stories and traditions that she grew up within that had had great meaning for her. But when I asked, like, what about people who never heard these stories? I remember my mom saying, I don't know. And yeah. even before she kind of reached the stance she's at now on like the LGBTQ question. And I brought questions to her about gay people. I think she said, gosh, I don't know. That's, a, you know, even when she was, when she wasn't where she is now on that, she was, she had a posture of humility that I hope that I can pass on.
2: I love that. I love that. Well, You've talked already several times about the arts and the arts in the church. And Nancy, obviously, you're the you're the godmother of church drama. And (laughs) in a lot of ways, for good, like you produce some really high quality stuff. And then and then there was a lot of us that experienced the like seeing what you did and then churches trying to mimic that and then swinging the pendulum the other way like we will never have so I, <laughs> I had the experience of like some really bad church dramas and even a large church but like that they were just poorly written they were cheesy and i was so embarrassed by them and so when i started leaving church it was like we're not we're not doing that kind of stuff right and so you end up almost like swinging to this utilitarian kind of side mm-hmm. and I'd be curious, like one of the things that you, 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 I don't remember which one of you, one of you quotes, Barbara Brown Taylor, BBT saying that the central task of the church is an imaginative one Yeah. and like recapturing imagination, opening us up to imagination. I would be curious what you all think, like, what does that look like now? Like is church, does church drama come back? Like what, (laughs) what does it look like to re-engage arts and beauty in the church to reintroduce that to the church now?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I can start. I'll be very curious to hear what my mom has to say on this. I I love that quote, and I love Barbara Boutin, and she talks about that role for the church of the church. And so I think it's pretty unimaginative for the answer to be, we're just going to have one, usually, guy get up and talk for 20 minutes because we're too scared to try anything else. I mean, I just think we get to be now fiercely imaginative about how Sunday is an expression of God's beauty or how we're reaching for God's beauty or asking questions about it. And I think the thing we cannot let go of that the arts can do in a way that nothing else can is name the hard and ask questions without resolving it. It's what art does so well. It doesn't need to preach. It just stands alone and, um, and asks our unanswerable questions. And so I would hate to see us let go of that. And I think drama in particular does that really well. And so I've had this really huge learning curve the last few years, and I'm excited to keep experimenting. I stepped into a church that was, our congregation is full of a lot of people with a lot of spiritual wounding. And so anything that sniffed of artifice or too much money or too much, you know, there was just an immediate reaction to, but I still believe that art had a role to play. And so I had to figure out how to connect and You know, there's some really functional aesthetic things I think we can take with us and shift that might work better now than than maybe in the past. I think like it's for an example in the drama world, um, pretending like the audience isn't there, I think sometimes comes off a certain way versus pieces where I've just started trying to write directly to the people in the room and and often I'm playing myself instead of a character. And maybe some of those things will come back. But for me in my work, that's like a simple aesthetic shift that I've found helpful. So I, I would hate to see us leave the arts behind, but I do see how some of the aesthetic and way we do, it might, might need to shift.
2: Okay. Yeah. Nancy, what's your thoughts?
0: Oh gosh, don't get
1: me started. Well, (laughs) I think the church does a great job of swinging pendulums. And I write about that in the chapter about the gathering, because I've watched this and I do think there's been a huge reaction to anything that feels performed. Um, It's interpreted as automatically inauthentic. If something is rehearsed, that's like bad. So the only way the Holy Spirit can really show up is if it's totally spontaneous, which I don't really believe is true, but these are the ways we swing pendulums. And so we throw out the art, and you're right, so many churches have done not just drama, but a lot of the other arts so poorly that people say, you know, they don't just say you did that poorly. They say drama is bad, dance is bad, you know, um, people painting up front is bad, all of, all of these things. And, and they can be bad if they're, if they're done poorly. But I truly believe that this imagination that Sam's describing in Barbara Brown Taylor is, is so lost now in so many places. I walk into gatherings and I can almost tell you exactly what's going to happen in every church and we're going to sing three worship songs and then some host is going to come up and then we're going to have a message and that's, that's it. And I say, what really? I I think there's so much more um, beauty to be tapped into ways that we can illustrate and describe and portray the love of God and the truth of scripture beyond what we're doing. So I, I'm beginning to see some pockets where people are saying, okay, we don't have to throw everything out. Let's, let's see if we can invent new ways and new methods. And I'm all for that. You know, I just think that we've abandoned some things that some places did really poorly and, you know, labeled certain art forms as bad that, that truly are not. If you think about just drama and and that's just one art form, but is every generation loves story. I mean, look at all the series on the platforms, the streaming platforms and the movies and and TikTok, even our little stories. You know, story is everywhere. And the question is, how do we tell our stories and how do we do it effectively?
2: Yeah. Do you all mind giving some examples just to get the wheels turning a little bit of like what does this look like? Cause it's difficult, you know, on a week in, week out basis mm-hmm. to to figure that out. And I fell into the trap of maybe both of you were writing about it, one of you was at least, of like, at christmas and easter like all right like we should step up our game a little bit and i'm gonna Mm -hmm. find the people in the church who can dance and we're gonna have some dance as a part of it and i'm gonna like we're gonna do this like we're gonna put together this little film we're we're gonna do the thing we're gonna do it on that on those days because we have a part of it was like we had we're building capacity to be able to do that for that time and it often felt like we don't have the capacity to do that to do something well on a week in week out basis like what would be just some things to get our wheels turned on. Like, what could that look like on a on a healthy week-in, week-out rhythm?
0: Go ahead, Mom. <laughs> well, first
1: of all, it doesn't have to be every week. And, okay. you know, we always say Sundays come around with amazing regularity every seven days. There's a new one, and it's a blank sheet of paper. And, you know, so so I get the reality of that. I do think you want to start by looking at what has God brought you? Like what kind of artists even exist in your church? Every church has some. You don't have all of them, but you have some. You know, so do you have photographers? Do you have a sculptor? Do you have a poet? Do you have a writer? Um, the poet's a good example because at Sam's church, they discovered they did have a couple of poets. And poets write a benediction every week for their service based on the message that someone's, you know, delivering. It's a beautiful tool and it's a tool that they uncovered right there within the community of people that they had we didn't do dance at willow for years because we didn't have a good dancer we didn't have a leader we didn't have a choreographer and then god bless us with someone and it was not hokey church dance it was like really great dance and so then yeah let's let's see what we could do with that but it's not every single week i do think if you have a team of people who sit around a table, even if it's three people, and they look at what the theme is for that week or the scripture that you're going to study or whatever, lectionary, however you do it. And they sit together and they say, is there any way we could bring this to life? Is there something different we could do? Samantha's done some really interesting exercises within her church. Tell them about the one you did where there was something under people's seats or something, what was happening there?
0: Under people's seats. I don't know what twenty you talking about. Well, okay. I mean, one time we had, we d- had established this benediction thing and then that could become its own routine that you then get to break. And so mm-hmm. we disrupted that one week and we were talking about creativity. It was as we thought we were emerging from the pandemic. We weren't actually, but we thought we're <laughs> going to need to be people of creativity now. And so we invited, we did like a Mad Libs benediction and people kind of wrote their own and filled in some pieces. And so even once you've set up the form, then how can you subvert it and play with it? I think, mm-hmm. I think, yeah, what my mom's describing, the greatest gift to your artist is when you can look ahead and go, okay, here's a weekend where we're going to be talking about something that might really be served by helping bring it to life, especially visually. And I'm a person who thinks first in images. And so like for me as an artist at my church, it was such a gift when the pastor could say, you know, a month ahead. And we did this with, um, we were doing a big weekend to try to get people involved in our with our missional partner, global partner. And so we're going to want to get people involved. How could we move their hearts to want to join what they're doing? And it was the height of, the, of COVID. And I couldn't stop thinking about how this image of people being connected by string. So that even if people are far away on another in another country that we're trying to serve, what the pandemic has revealed to us is that we're all connected. And so that string thing just wouldn't leave my mind. And we eventually put together like this little fable about a people who are connected by string. And sometimes that image is the thing that will fuel the whole, the whole service and what it looks like and what it becomes. And so the, the, just the on-ramp, the few weeks of notice to just let those images start surfacing in the heads of your artists, I think is a huge gift and sometimes can surprise you where it takes you.
2: Yeah, that's really good. That's really helpful. That's super practical. So you all, you, you engage in talking about women and men partnering together, which is a really important and helpful part of the book. And you even, Sam, you alluded to earlier, like you have this event that happens that causes you to like mm-hmm. ask questions. There's some people that event causes them to double down, right? Like we mm-hmm. see that, but for you all, it opened you up in new and different ways. And, and so you talk a little bit about. The revelations that have come out about Bill Hybels, about his abuse of power and position, sexual allegations against him and all of that. And the way that Nancy, that your story intertwined with that. And then Sam, even like yours and having like been grown up there and experiencing faith for the first time there, being formed there in some ways, I, I would be curious for folks to hear you each kind of share a little bit about the way that you wrestled through like coming to terms with that reality in your church, because it was a different experience for both of you, was the impression that I got of one who was in leadership, one who had been formed there. And because one of the things that that you wrote, Sam, is you said, I believe the most defining characteristic of a truly incarnational church in the future is that it will be a church reckoning with its past. There's something to me about that that wasn't just about, like you were writing that in a framework of being honest about the larger church's past. Mm-hmm. But I think it's really hard when you are in the midst of the church to be honest (laughs) about like your own church (laughs) and the things that you helped create or the things that were so meaningful and formed. And I think for a lot of us, our immediate reaction is to always want to either like put up defenses for that, to turn a blind eye to that, to sweep stuff under the rug because things have been so meaningful. So, so all that to say, I would love, I think it would be helpful for folks to hear like, What did it look like to wrestle through something like that when you had been a part of like forming that church and it had been so meaningful for you in that way? And what what was it like to wrestle through that when that church had formed you in so many ways?
1: That's a great question. You know, our church was egalitarian from pretty much the beginning. And so I think it surprised a lot of people in some ways because doors of opportunity were opened up for women. And I was one of those people who had, lots of leadership opportunity, not feeling much of a ceiling over me to teach and to lead and and to just really show up with the gifts that God has given me. And much of my experience there working alongside men was very positive, particularly in my team. I had a team of brothers and sisters that uh, just really became like a family. So when stories began surfacing and allegations started coming out, it rocked everything within me. And like most people, I didn't want to believe it and went into, you know, denial for a bit until I couldn't um, any longer ignore the weight of evidence that that was coming forward. And then ended up being an advocate for some of the other women whose stories were much more difficult and painful than my own. And becoming more public in a way that terrified me. It was not, um, I, for those who know the Enneagram, I'm a three on the Enneagram. I care a whole lot about my image and what people think of me way more than I should. I want to be approved of. And so I don't step out into scary territory very often. And this was all new for me and really, really frightening. But it was also a great learning experience. And I had to, Go back to the basics of what do I believe about men and women working alongside each other? What do I believe it means to be a brother or a sister to one another? Is this even doable? Because it wasn't just at Willow, but in many places, moral failures were happening. They continue to happen. We keep hearing these stories. And my deep concern all along continues to be, again, with the pendulum swinging, are people going to say, well, that's what happens when men and women serve together. So the answer is to run back into our corners and have more rules and find ways to separate and not allow women to really flourish as leaders. And I think that's totally the wrong answer and not the path to to flourishing the way I think God intends for us all to, men and women. I think the answer is really in spiritual formation and is in growing our hearts and Christ within us to the degree that it would be unthinkable for us to violate someone else's marriage vows or, you know, cross these lines. And so I do have great concern for the church at large and what I see happening. I think the rules answer feels safer, but I don't think it it in the end works for one thing. It doesn't really work. But also it restricts women's ability to actually lead. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, it's, and then watching my kids because I didn't even want to tell them what was going on at first, you know, because like you say, they had been formed in that church and I thought, are they going to throw everything out because this happened? Thankfully they didn't, but yeah, that was a real journey. Hmm.
0: Yeah. Well, we didn't because I think I came to see what my mom did as an act of love for the church. I mean, I just it for for me, it was a, it was my intro into non-dualistic consciousness, and <laughs> to use a big, broad term. but I mean, to just holding two true things at once that I got a lot of good there, and I don't have to let go of that and And there was good teaching from a man who hurt people. and and people were really hurt, and we had to deal with that. And so allowing multiple things to be true at mm-hmm. once was like a huge journey for me. but but I, came to see that my mom and the other women did what they did because, well, because it was right, because it was pursuing justice and that, that it was an act of love because the church the church isn't gonna succeed because everyone thinks it's perfect because it's no news to us, people outside the church don't think the church is perfect. And so when the church can lead the way in saying we have some stuff we have to deal with and we we're gonna, we're gonna pause and sacrifice our image for a moment to, to lament and to confess and to put better systems in place and better governance in place and, and protect the people who need to be protected. I mean, that, that work matters. And I think that's a better story to the people who are watching than pretending like we never have the issues that every single other industry is reckoning with, right? Mm -hmm. In these last years with the Me Too movement. Why would the church be exempt from that? We too are people. And so I mean, it breaks my heart and I think it's got, we have to prioritize dealing with it. And I, I think that's the better story that I want to tell about, about the church.
2: That's really good. I appreciate that. I think for me, when I was reading some of that from both your perspectives, like I thought there's something really beautiful about Nancy, your courage and your willingness to put your name with it, which was like, I mean, I think you mentioned that you knew some like, that it would be bothersome to some folks you probably didn't know to the extent of what all would come of that and of the way that your name would get dragged through the mud in some spaces really publicly and then sam to see like you wrestle with a church that had formed you like that but to move to this place of of being able to hold both of those things together of like this was there was things that were really beautiful and meaningful and that's still true Mm -hmm. and yet it's also still true that like these other things happened too and that that was that was true and being able to hold those two things together like so both the courage to be able to confront a system that you were a part of and help create and at the same time also being able to competing truths together side by side like that to me is just a really beautiful picture for us as we move forward in all kinds of different ways
0: mm-hmm. yeah. thank you
2: so i would love to to talk a little bit about Sam, you mentioned earlier about evolving views around LGBTQ inclusion. And that's obviously when you have a whole chapter on oppression and exclusion in the church, and you talk about primarily two things. You talk about racial justice and anti-racism and talk about LGBTQ inclusion. And like, those are obviously both like huge topics in the church right now, huge flashpoints in the church in all kinds of ways. I would love to hear a little bit of your process of like particularly around LGBTQ inclusion like what what has that process looked like for you to sort of to wrestle through shifting views in that area.
1: Well, starting a few years before the book project or anything, I was I think really on a quest to understand myself what point of view I grew up with and what was the traditional point of view that I had about marriage and sexuality and how to reconcile that with real relationships with gay people that I loved and that my kids loved, you know, some of their friends, et cetera. I couldn't put all that together. And like a lot of people have said, this isn't unique to me, but I really couldn't seem to reconcile my head and my heart. You know, my my head was saying, I believe in scripture and I believe we can't, we have to take it seriously. So I'm not one of these people who can just go, I don't care what the Bible says about this. I'm going to come up with my own plan. You know, I couldn't do that. At the same time, my heart was filled with love for people who basically were saying, this is how I feel I was created. This is who I am. I wouldn't even choose this because it's so hard, but this is, you know, this is my reality. And what do I do with that? So I did what a lot of people um, have done with the men and women in leadership issue. I started reading widely. I I tried to read broadly, like different points of view and dig into the scriptural passages of which there aren't very many. Really, there's six or seven that even come close to addressing this question and really wrestled with it. And I was hoping that I would have a slam dunk experience. Yeah. That that was my hope. It's going to be crystal clear, and then I can state my my position on this. It wasn't, but I learned a lot. I learned a lot, and I, I, I guess I would say I found out that I do not have to abandon my high view of Scripture in order to have a different view than the traditional one that I grew up with in order to have an affirming view. So it's been, it, this is pretty new for me. It's yeah. been, you know, quite a long road. And one that I understand is one of the most divisive questions in the evangelical world right now. And so my concern has been wherever I land, you know, that now I'll be labeled and that, uh, you know, this book is about so many things, but that it could be the one thing that people take away. I'm very aware of that. Meanwhile, my daughters came to an affirming point of view long before I did. And I don't want to say it's generational, but I think there's something to that. to, to their generation, even in the, within the Christian circles. But, you know, they were very patient with me and we had lots of family conversations about this. I think it's one of the top questions in the church today. And so we didn't feel we could ignore it in the book. I don't think you can talk about the future of the church and not take a look at this question. But you're right, entire books have been written about racism and entire books have been written about <laughs> this, you know, sexuality and this question. And we have this one little chapter, but we really felt like we wanted to at least give our point of view and, and the journey we're on, because we think a lot of people are on a similar
0: journey.
2: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And Sam, you went through a shift.
0: I did. Yeah. Um, maybe my biggest shift was more from hiding or not hiding, but being okay with a church that maybe wasn't where I was at and theologically on this, and then moving to being a part of an affirming community and experiencing that that change. And it was just like, it was just so freeing to just not have to feel like I was part of an organization that was so concerned with controlling everyone's behavior and that we just actually got to partner together in seeking God and expressing love together. And I just, I've learned so much from the gay community at our church and I can't imagine our church without them expressing their fullest identity of who they are and us getting to celebrate that. Um, I just think, you know, similar to, to women, when we, when we shut off a huge part of, of people from access to our stages and our teams and leadership roles, there's just a big part of God's image we don't get to see. And so it's been, I wish I had sought out an affirming community earlier or maybe pushed for more clarity at the church, you know, I was at before. And I want to mention that, you know, we use these two issues, as as my mom said, very many case studies. There are many different people groups that I think the church has to reconcile with. I think about indigenous people. I think about yeah. people with disabilities. And I think, as my mom said, entering into a process of listening and not staying there forever, but listening to the people we've hurt, the people we haven't seen on our stages. I mean, it, it, when you start thinking about it, it becomes very clear who those people are. And that that they would be the ones um, to help us see see how we can reconcile this part of our past.
2: Yeah, or the people who have been on our stages but haven't been able to be fully themselves. Mm-hmm.
0: On yes, yes.
2: And mm-hmm. uh, I remember, I, I can remember very very clearly the very first worship service I was in, where the worship leader uh, is a gay black man, and I just wept during like the experience of him leading me in worship. And I went and talked with him afterwards and was like, this is the first time that like, I was being led in worship by by a gay man. And he goes, No, it's not. It's the first time though, that you like, that it was an openly gay man leading you in worship, like, but you've been led in worship by gay men before. And there was something like that was really powerful about being in that moment where somebody who's leading could be fully who they were, as they were leading me in that way. It was really a meaningful experience for me. Absolutely. I think
0: uh,
1: the biggest thing that we, we're not trying to argue anything really in this book, but we are asking for people to wrestle with the question and not just stay where they are and assume that there isn't anything more to learn or, or to grow from. And then secondly, for churches, and this is what I hear from gay brothers and sisters to have clarity, you know, just, tell us where, where you are on this. Don't tell us we're welcome. And then we find out we're really not welcome or that we can't lead or, you know, whatever. So I I think those are the things that I would cry out for. I think the church owes that to all people and this, this open spirit and, you know, people can land in a different place than I have. And we can agree to disagree. I do that with a lot of people on the question of women in leadership. And you, you have to say, this is how you see scripture and this is how, how I do. But can we respect one another, love one another and focus on things that really matter going forward so that the kingdom of God can advance?
2: Yeah, that's a really helpful framework for like, because obviously um, people's views on women and leadership affects you directly. Yes. Right. Like I'm not in a lot of spaces where I can be in a lot of spaces where we have a lot of differing views and I can create a lot of space for people with differing views but their different views don't necessarily affect me directly. Mm -hmm, Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And obviously for you to be in a space where somebody believes that women can't serve and lead in their fullest potential in the church, that's a direct impact on you. Yeah. I, I would be curious to hear, I, I don't even know like how to ask the question to hear you, like even tease that out a little bit of what it looks like for you to sit in that tension where you are an incredibly gifted woman who has been given the chance to lead in significant ways in the church, but then to be in community with people who would say like, yeah, that's really great, but you couldn't do that in my church.
1: I had a conversation like that just last week with yeah. a very young leader. You know, I, I thought if you would have told me 30 years ago that we would still have many, many churches um, and led by young people who hold to a more complementarian view of men and women in leadership, I would have said, no, no, there's going to be so much progress and, you know, theologically, we're going to stretch and grow and, and all of that. I, I have been surprised. And, you know, I have to sort of, I have to sort of say, you know what, I want to say this sentence often. I could be wrong. And I hope that other people say that sentence hmm. often. You know, I don't, I don't really think much is gained by intense arguments about this, especially if, if a person feels like they're at peace with their point of view, so then I have to say, well, where do what do we have in common, and can we move forward with that? But I I have to fight wanting to be a fierce advocate for women in their church who I think are going to feel squished in some way and not have the opportunity to flourish in their gifts. It, it's hard. It's it's not easy for me.
2: Hmm. Yeah. The I could be wrong posture is so helpful. I think it's also a helpful question. One of the things that when our elder board at the church that I was leading, we went through a process where it shifted to become fully egalitarian. And one of the things that was like, uh, that turned the corner for a couple of the the elders at the time we were processing it was asking the question of, well, what if I'm wrong on this? So what if we open up, every space in the church to women in leadership. And what if I'm wrong? And that's not what we're supposed to do. And what if we don't? And I'm wrong. And like, and playing each of those scenarios out and sort of like playing out like, okay, what if we have these incredibly gifted women who are proclaiming the gospel teaching and doing these things? And one day I find out like we should, I shouldn't have done that. Like, what are the consequences of that? Versus we we have all these incredibly gifted women who we said like, no, you can't serve in these roles. And we kept their leadership. And like, what are the long-term consequences of that
0: And
2: sort of playing out the Like, well, so not even only saying like, I can hold this thing and I might be wrong, but at the same time, like, well, if I'm wrestling through things like LGBTQ inclusion, uh, full participation of women in the church, what's it look like to have a real racial reckoning in the church, those sorts of things. And like playing out like, okay, if we go these two different paths and I'm, if I'm wrong, what is the long-term consequence of each of those paths? I think for me, is it, that was a helpful framework.
1: Yeah, it serves me well too. And I know it sounds like maybe oversimplification, but I keep thinking I'd rather get to heaven and hear, you know, you are way too inclusive. Yeah. Um, yeah. Then, <laughs> then, you know what? You kind of open the door a little too wide. You know, I I, I doubt that's going to happen, but it could. And I would rather err on the side of inclusive.
2: I have so many other things to ask you, but I want to be mindful of our time. So, so let me just wrap it up with this. You are both still involved in the church and you even begin your last chapter saying something like, you, you could feel like we're real cynical and stuff, but we're actually not. So I would love to hear from both of you. Like, why are you still hopeful about the church?
0: Hmm. Yeah, my husband's favorite quote is that Teddy Roosevelt one about, um, it's not the critic that counts, but it's the person who's who's in the ring. I don't think we get to debrief and, and throw stones if we're not engaged and trying to make to to be part of this project. Well, we get to if we've been hurt, but I mean but I mean I think I think it's important that those of us who are critical of this are, are still experimenting and still trying. I I think I have hope because I just don't when the church is a force of love in the community, I don't see anything like it in our modern world. I don't know of any except outside of other faith traditions in their communities where they gather. I mean, and I think my friends, and I can't, again, speak for my whole generation, but the people I know long to be a part of something like what the church is when it's at its best or when it's healthy. We long to be in community with people who don't look like us and who we wouldn't meet otherwise. We actually do. We know something deep in us knows we're transformed by that. We long to get plugged into places that are serving folks in our city who are in need and are also doing that globally and reminding us that we have brothers and sisters overseas who who are in need and we often need an avenue to get us connected and we need the discipleship to be transformed in doing that in a way that's responsible and sustainable and respectful. Um, and I think we long, I even think even after COVID especially, we long to come together once a week and be reminded that these like little logistics that we spend our whole week working through are that we're actually part of this much bigger story and that that there's healing available, that there's freedom available, and that we are a work in progress and that that's okay and that we're loved no matter what. I mean, I think these things, like, we all long to hear this and be, and we all need to be reminded of this every week. And so that's what gives me hope. I, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know where else you'd go for that. And and I, I long to um, help build a church that people aren't so scared of <laughs> that, they, that they don't get to be a part of that.
2: Hmm, I love that. Thanks, Sam.
1: Well, that was so beautifully said. I don't have much to add. I would just say that, you know, after over 60 years, I still believe that the church is the hope of the world. Jesus is ultimately the hope of the world, but the church is the sort of way that we communicate his love to the world. And Certainly some of my highest highs and my lowest lows have been in the church. And there have been people who've asked me sometimes, why didn't you just leave? Why didn't you just quit? And I think of when Peter said, you know, well, where else should we go to Jesus? Like, like I believe a local church is God's plan A for reconciling the world to himself and for bringing us into community. And I don't really think there's a plan B. And honestly, I often look to heaven and go, you know, what was your plan B? Because we're really messing this up. This is really not going very well. But I think we're intended to keep doing whatever we can to make the bride of Christ more beautiful. In whatever location you're at, how can it be a little more loving and a little more joyful and a little more freeing and a little more truthful and a little more just and a little more inclusive and all of that every week if we just keep saying, I want to be a part of the solution here to create a community that I would want to be a part of and that I want my children and grandchildren to want to be a part of. So I do have great hope. I see communities all over the world of various size and all different kinds. And I, you can walk in there and you can go, oh, wow, I can sense the love of Christ in this place. And that is a beautiful thing to witness and to be a part of. And I want to do it the rest of my life. You know, I mm. will choose some local church to invest in. It's
2: great. What a gift. Thank you, Nancy and Sam for being a part of this. I'm really looking forward to people getting your book next Sunday it releases on June 14th. And I'm imagining all kinds of great multi generational conversations that are going to come out of it of mm. folks that are going to be Reading it in church leadership communities, reading it with their parents, reading it with people that are coming at it from different generations, and you being able to help spark some really good conversations around people rethinking, being open to being challenged and changed, and just dreaming about what the church can look like moving forward. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, thanks for this gift.
0: We hope so. Thank you, Mike.
1: Thanks for having us. Mike.